on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. I could write a book where I just talk about the beautiful things that teachers of color contribute to the field. But what would be lost in a book like that is the harm that our systems enact on our communities. Part of racial literacy is understanding how racism operates and recognizing its harm. The term teachers of color is both a simple and loaded one. Simple in its description of teachers who don't identify as white, but loaded with all the nuanced experiences between the many racial and ethnic groups included in that term. Despite varying histories, perceptions, languages, and frictions that can exist, teachers of color have a shared experience, underrepresentation. Currently, about half the student population are students of color, and only 20% of the teacher population are teachers of color. They also often report experiencing different forms of invisibility, professional neglect, and pressure to assimilate into racist education norms and ideas in ways that can negatively impact their well-being and instruction. As I learned through my own experience as a black male educator and through the podcast series, The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, there are definitely unique challenges for us. Professor Retha Coley, however, would like to offer a counter story. Join me as Retha and I discuss her book, Teachers of Color, Resisting Racism and Reclaiming Education, where we focus on this counter story. A counter story where we honor the common and varied experiences between the folks of color that make up the profession. A counter story that promotes self-care, resistance, and innovative teaching. This is the LP. Our guest is the illustrative Professor Retha Coley. Professor Coley is an educator and author, uh, associate professor of teaching and teacher education at the University of California, Riverside. She has served as a middle school teacher, my tribe, and teacher educator. Her current research focuses on race, power, equity, and inequity in the professional experiences and well-being of teachers of color. I'm one of those. And in addition to this book that we're going to be focusing on, she co-edited the book Confronting Racism in Teacher Education. That's a thing, y'all. Narratives from Teacher Educators. Folk and fam, we have Retha Coley. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here. No, thanks for being here. Greatly appreciate it. And before we hop into our questions about your book, can you please do us a favor and share what was your favorite text as a kid if you had one? What was your favorite text as an adolescent if you had one? And what was your favorite text as an adult if you had one? Yeah, thanks for that question. I appreciate that. So as a kid, I really loved Wrinkle in Time. So I was really appreciative Mm. of the remake. As an adolescent, you know, I kind of fell out of love of reading because I was forced to read things in schools that felt really disconnected from my life. Like Canterbury Tales, I remember, was was a book where where we had to read it and I felt really just like, what is this? How does this connect to me? We moved from there to, you know, Shakespeare and Great Gatsby and things like that that just really felt disconnected from who I was. And then kind of coming into college and being exposed to things like Toni Morrison and some graphic novels like Persepolis and other things like that. And so, you know, now I love Octavia Butler. I love Jhumpa Lahiri. So those are kind of my my novel, my fiction texts that I, that I love. Uh, can I ask you a, a follow-up with that? I noticed that you select a lot of novels, right? Is that kind of like a a remedy for the heavy informational text you have to engage with? Because I catch myself doing that myself, particularly with like Octavia Butler and a lot of speculative fiction and science fiction. 
where, you know, with heavy books like Teachers of Color <laughs> or any of the other books that I read, which are about my purpose, other like nonfictional texts tend to kind of ease my brain a bit and rejuvenate me. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that being in academia and having to read really serious, heavy, heavy work that's in reality, I mean, not that I don't say Octavia Butler is very heavy as well, but I, I think, True. you know, I'm a qualitative researcher. I love narrative. I love story. No doubt. No doubt. No, and, and thank you for already making that connection, right? Because it's so true. You told the story of the experience of educators of color through telling story, and you in particular used the term counter story. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about that choice, right? Because the research you used for this book included, what, some 500 short answer uh, response questionnaires and about 50 digital narratives and interviews. That's a big counterpunch to like westernized forms of data and to this particular genre of, of education literature. Can you talk about the role story and counter story can play in delivering and developing instruction? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you for that question. I mean, I think, you know, when we think about many BIPOC communities and our indigenous forms of wisdom, a lot of that comes through story, right? So we're engaged in story. We hear stories from our elders. Stories are passed down through generation and story has lessened. And I think that when we're trying to engage in this work, you know, there's been a lot of pushback in academia around the positivist kind of scientific approach to that could be ex exploitative to really understanding our communities. And so I follow a lot of the, the legacy and traditions of critical race theory and other, other scholars who have really engaged in building up that kind of story narrative as a way to push back against dominant narratives. And so if we think about master narratives that exist or that tell, tell dominant ways of being in their stories, and, and these are ways for people to speak back to that and speak back to power. And so I think it's, it's an important approach to really hearing the kind of complex, nuanced experiences that people have had, but also infusing the lessons that they want to share with the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if, I think, <laughs> I think that you, you brought up CRT, right? And we know what a messy battlefield that's become in our country. And really it's a battle of story when you boil it down, right? It's a battle of story, which is just narrative and, and a narrative uh, that has power and who holds that narrative and, and who gets to uh, tell it, right? Because if you tell it the way that you're deciding to tell it, it's in the hands of the people being educated, right? Who are part of the same community of the educators in this case, right? Uh, the teachers of color, but that doesn't comfort too many people. So here we are. Right. <laughs> and actually, I, I wanted to be sure to ask you this, because the term educators of color is so broad. And you talk a bit about this in the, in the beginning of your book. Can you touch a bit about what it is meant to and I'm just going to say this at, to another person of color in the way I can only share with another person of color. Can you describe how you tackled the nuances of like all the differences and similarities between the different type teachers, uh, types of teachers of color without playing like oppression Olympics, right? Like, wait a minute, but we had to deal with this. We're like, nah, but we had to deal with that. Like there, there can be so much like, there's a lot of intersectionality, but there's also can be a lot of friction between communities of color in general. 
let alone in the education field? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, as somebody who is, I'm South Asian, I experience the world as a person of color, but it doesn't equate to, you know, our experiences are diverse across our racialization, across our positionality, our class, our, our geography, our immigration status. I mean, there's so many ways in which those things intersect and overlap to create positionalities that that have very different manifestations of that racialization. And so I think what's important is to understand that, you know, the way that I told the stories, I want to tell the stories that honor people in their own positionalities. So it isn't meant to be comparative. It isn't meant for one story to seem, or one community or one kind of experience to be compared um, in terms of the, as you said, the oppression Olympics. But I think that we also need to note that racialization and the way that white supremacy and anti-Blackness operate in the United States is relational, right? And so the ways in which different communities have been racialized has impact and relationship to each other. And so I think if we're really trying to have a deeper analysis of what white supremacy looks like in this country, we have to be able to understand our various racializations relationally. So I think that that's kind of the approach I take in my work. And so being able to tell these stories side by side hopefully helps to tell a story of power and system that I don't know that we could see otherwise. That's really my main kind of approach to this. I also want to note that the teachers who participated in the work, because teachers of color are such a minoritized and demographically isolated community in the education educator workforce, a lot of the people in the study themselves felt allyship and community um, with each other. In the book, I do use the term teacher of color when I'm talking about people in the aggregate, but I'm very clear that it's important to name specific racial identifiers and the ways in which people particularly identify in their own narratives and their own experiences. Yeah, no, and that and that that was very clear, and I I really appreciated the nuance that was captured in a way that wasn't hyper coded either. It wasn't cryptic. What knowledge may folks need or want before they dive into your text? What may they want to ask questions about? Yeah, I mean, I I was I was always kind of coached to write so my mother can read it, right? Um, hmm. It is always um, a goal of mine and an influence in my style of writing to be complex, but to be accessible. And so I hope that this is a book that many people in different stages or places of their life can access, um, especially because of the narrative approach. But I will say that probably one precursor to really being able to embrace the book is to believe that structural racism is real. (laughs) And so I think you know, having some understanding of it, but I do think that I add to that understanding and I hope that I have operationalized that throughout. But I would say that that is probably the first tenet of being able to access the book. Yeah, no, I I would say that that's pretty clear, or at least from my read. I think it's really undervalued about the energy is required to read even by very literate people. Thank you for writing it as if your mother uh, would be reading it. Speaking of the mothers in your family, uh, you dedicated your book to your grandmother. What can educators learn about their profession from your grandmother's practice in life as an educator? 
my grandmother lived in India, was married in her early teens, and was expected to stop all of her education by the time she got married. And so as a very young person, you know, now responsible for being in marriage, then soon after having children, there was really no expectation that she would do, you know, have any kind of connection or um, engagement with education. But she defied those odds and pushed through and went to school and decided to kind of pursue her education degree and open a school where girls could attend in her own village. Wow. And so I see a lot of parallels around her story and the stories that I'm trying to tell in the book around resisting the status quo, resisting the kind of expectations of power and marginality that we see in education and imagining something different and reclaiming something different. So it's been fascinating to see folks who either have been poured into or found ways to be poured into end up pouring into other folks generationally. So to hear that your grandmother set up her own institution and here you are transforming an institution with teacher prep programs, that's just, that's inspiring to hear and and to see. Speaking of teacher prep programs, I got a question about that. (laughs) Let me phrase it like this. When you study what colleges and school systems, when you study their impact that the uh, instructional power of educators of color have had through these like case studies, which patterns support that instructional power and which ones extinguish it? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's a very complicated question, you know, because this is not, it's not universal. But I would say that, you know, I think it's important as we recruit to diversify teacher prep programs, which I know is on the radar and goal of many programs these days, that there is very little often paradigmic shifts that go along with that. So you can't recruit in BIPOC educators and then continue to operate through the same traditional curriculum that centers the white teachers that have been centered for generations, decades, hundreds of years. And so I think there has to be a shift in the curriculum that can really support support that. Um, I think, you know, centering racial literacy as a collective in both teacher education programs and school districts, that that's a collective responsibility for people to have the knowledge of how structural racism operates and how they might name it, analyze it and disrupt it. I think that kind of accountability to this work is really important because I think often we conflate and confuse diversity with racial justice or racial equity. And those two things are not the same, you know? And so I think it's really important that we don't see diversity as a remedy for racial inequity. And so we have to be able to support the kind of community orientations of educators of color, the ways in which they need racial literacies to navigate, the ways in which they are being supported and cultivated to be agents of change in their own schools context, but also to think about who their peers are and how they're being cultivated in this work, who the teacher educators are, the administrators, how they're being cultivated in this work. And so I do think it goes, you know, beyond just an initiative to support this one community to really thinking about how are we making these spaces healthy racial climates and healthy um, spaces for BIPOC communities. 
I want to ask you a question about how you structured your text um, because you split it into three main themes, right? Theme one is racialization. Theme two was resistance. And theme three was reimagination. How do you feel those particular themes lent to that goal that you just stated? And how does it lend to educators improving their practice? Yeah, you know, in education, what's so interesting, we always want to jump to best practices. And best practices are kind of problematic because of the ways in which we're, you know, they're a historical, they're a contextual, a situational. But I do think that, you know, one of the other things that's lost and always moving towards the solution is that we don't sit in the problem. And so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I could write a book where I just talk about the beautiful things that teachers of color contribute to the field. But what would be lost in a book like that is the the harm that our systems impact or enact on, on our communities, right? Not just when we're students, but also when we're educators and when we're trying to stand in for to protect our communities or to change things for our communities, to work with our communities, we end up experiencing that harm, right? And I think that that's really, really important for us to sit with. And it can be really hard to read I mean, you know, people have talked about using the book with pre-service teachers. They're like, okay, we got to skip chapters two and three because we don't want them to, you know, like lose their vision or hope for being in the profession. And I think that that's very real. But I do think that that's really important that we are able to understand that part of racial literacy is understanding how racism operates and recognizing its harm. The second arc of the book is, you know, about resistance and I think we've seen over time that BIPOC communities are very powerful and have engaged in resistance throughout our history, um, throughout what we've seen. And and that is really foundational to the power of our communities and, and our rejection of the status quo. And, and I think that that was important to name and to be able to, to show those tools. But I think because our identity can't be centralized around the harm all the time, like I really think about this when we talk right. about everybody needs to be anti-racist. And I think, you know, like, yes, I think that probably white folks need to be anti-racist. But if we were to describe our entire identity around being anti-racist, we are steeped then in shaping ourselves through an identity that is really about fighting against our own harm all the time. And when you're fighting against your harm all the time, you can't be fully whole. So there have to be other pieces of that. And I've seen, you know, there's a lot of work that's moving towards centering um, joy, black joy, other things like that. This idea of reimagination, you know, I think that that as a third arc of this was so important to be able to show, you know, this isn't the way it has to be done. And we can dream of something different. We can dream of spaces that actually serve our people and feel joyful and the possibility of what could be. And, and hearing you say those things, it made me think about, about some folks' um, propensity to maybe hear that and be like, wait a minute, Professor Coley is telling us to be colorblind. We shouldn't have to worry about being anti-race. You know, but obviously that's not what you're saying, but it's just so crazy how, you know, things can get twisted up. But but I, I 100% agree, and I see that in uh, the book, even with some of the examples you provided where, you know, it was just... You know, before the racialized construct uh, that we live in now, folks were who they were, right? Like, there weren't necessarily, like, 
these lenses to be like, these are the lenses that people look at me uh, with and I have to keep this in context as I be myself. I just, I want to be very clear. I am not advocating for anybody to be race evasive. Um, the entire purpose of the book is to really honor and center the fact that structural racism exists and that our communities are immersed in it from the time they enter kindergarten until the time that they are, you know, leaving the educational sphere and beyond, and that many of these educators are pushing back against it and fighting against it, and that we need to do better at holding that collective accountability through our leadership, through our policies, our practices, all of that. So this book is the opposite of race evasiveness. What I'm pushing back on this anti-racist piece is to more of a space of racial justice, right? So how are we moving from developing our identities as uh, racially minoritized people um, from a place of being anti against in a fight to a place where we can really be whole, right? And and be part of justice. And that does not mean not acknowledging race or racism. And definitely doesn't mean that everyone should should do that. I just I think that it can't be all that we it can't be it can't be our end goal. It can't be the end game. Yeah, no for sure. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about teacher preparation and professional development in particular. For the purposes of reimagination, how would you imagine critical professional development being integrated into education systems? And how could it lead to instruction being more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful? Yeah, I mean, critical professional development is trying to push on notions of professional development that are you know, kind of what I referenced before about the, the best practices or the, um, you know, really apoliticized, disconnected from social context and really are spaces that are meant to see teachers as agents of social change, to really build their political analysis and support their, their activism in this work, their agency in this work, right? And so the Institute for Teachers of Color that we've been co-directing with my, my co-director, Marco Spizzato. We've been running that for 12 years and we've been supporting that kind of political education and political development of educators around issues of racial justice, around engaging notions of, of race, racism, critical race theory, other things like that for, for the last 12 years. From that, you know, what we've learned is that, that a lot of the professional development and edu teacher training that, that educators are getting for a long time had been race evasive, you know, that those kinds of conversations were not part of the discourse. And I think, you know, with 2020 and the kind of movement for the need to be anti-racist, we've seen much, much more of that in schools and in teacher education than we have in the past. It's not just about content. It's, it's also about the way that we're framing this work, right? Um, the epistemologies which are the ways of knowing, the ways of the ontologies, the ways of being in the world that we're centering that this is collective work, right? There, there needs to be a community orientation in this work. And, you know, when you become an educator, it's not just about your, your classroom, even though that's foundationally important, um, what you do and how you shape what goes on, but it's also influenced by these social factors of what, what are your students experiencing when they come in the door? What are their families experiencing? What kinds of policies are coming down through the pipeline from the, the federal, state, um, district level that are having influences on our young people and their families and communities. 
and how and what is your role as an educator to to acknowledge and engage with all of that you know obviously i'm not negating the importance of lesson plans and quality um, curricular engagement that is foundational but i think that there's more to being an educator that we often don't recognize yeah as, as you were saying those things and i'm thinking back to my own experiences as a you know a black male educator that where i prepped with being able to answer the questions you just asked before I started teaching in my teacher preparation program, I would have had a lot more cognitive freedom, a lot more brain space to actually focus on instruction, right? Like you, you, there's this, first of all, there's this seemingly impossible learning curve when you are a first year teacher, even in the best circumstances, mm -hmm. right? even if there was a such thing as a race neutral circumstance in education, like it'd be really hard to just hit the ground running as a teacher, even if you were prepared excellently. But if you're not prepared excellently and you are an educator of color and there are all these things that are going to be put on you and that you bring into the space that have not been unpacked, talked about, anticipated, like there's this, extra steep learning curve, this invisible tax, as some call, that you have to navigate and figure out on top of figuring out your instruction. And I think what a first year teacher can tackle versus what a fifth year and what a 10th year teacher can tackle also shifts. But we, we don't, it's not like we come in year five and we give professional development on now that you have a handle on about these other things that's not really it and yeah. i see i see how that can influence even for a pre-service teacher when i'm working with pre-service teachers and they say well you know they said we had to use this text in our classroom um this is what we're all doing as a grade level and this is they i asked if i could change it and they said this is just what this is what we have to do and i said okay so do you think that that is a policy or do you think that's a choice somebody made mm. right like, what are the can you can you ask questions? Can you dig deeper to find out what the the reality of your boundaries are, the reality of your parameters? But I don't even I, I don't think that that's um, that kind of agency is the type of thing that we encourage teachers to have as we're working through their their teacher preparation, right? And and if we are going to push past the status quo, teachers have to be able to feel that sense of agency the agency that they have to be able to ask the questions to figure out what are the boundaries around what i have to do and what i can shift and change or how do i and if i wanted to shift and change it what are the steps i could take to do that we all have agency in this work to some degree and we we often don't know the bounds of that right and i think that that this is part of that political education is challenging us to think about that Instructional power is power, right? The teachers do have a lot bearing on their backs from levels of bureaucracy that go up past the teacher into, you know, all the way to the federal level for sure. But there's instructional power in front of those babies. What were some good examples that you noticed and that you found in the counter stories that you shared of teachers making sure that the learning is meaningful and connected to students' lives? Um, yeah, yeah, I love I love talking about that. <laughs> you know, one of the teachers in in the piece, um, well, all of the teachers who were engaging, they were all building from those tools of resistance we see in chapter five. So they were all building from a sense of you know having 
grown and engaged and strengthened their racial literacy, um, that they had been part of communities that really supported their struggle in this work, and that they had engaged to push back on kind of the status quo and that organizing for change. And so one of the teachers in the, in the book has been doing this beautiful work where they are engaging students in GIS mapping to really map the kind of inequities they're seeing in their communities and really push back on that and through real-time community advocacy. So some of the work that they've done, one of the group of juniors in high school mapped green space in different high schools, middle schools, elementary schools across the district, and they were able to show disparities in green space. And that was used in the UTLA strikes, right, um, to be able to help advocate for, for some of the things that some of the resources. There was another teacher who had engaged in the University of Hawaii's ethnomathematics program. And then yeah. brought that back and really in, you know, in Oahu, like really just centering indigenous knowledge in the classroom of land and relationship to land and place and ways that students just pushing back on the, the norms that have been, have just become so part of everyday life. So allowing students to take off their shoes as they come in the classroom, um, going outside to, to engage in this work and learn math by gardening and being in the land and, you know, other things like that. And just really powerful, powerful um, ways to approach education that, that were not just healing to the kids themselves, but she actually invited families and communities, their parents in too, because a lot of the reclaiming of indigenous knowledge that she felt like was not being passed down to young people were things that skipped their parents as well. And so for a lot of their parents, it was kind of coming back and learning some of this knowledge too. You know, and so there, there are multiple examples in the book that just show teachers on either a classroom level, but also on a district level, you know, advocating and pushing for these really radical shifts to, to the status quo of education that could center the knowledge systems, the cultural wealth of BIPOC communities. In answering that question, I feel like you touched a, a decent amount on uh, how your book can help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful uh, for students. In order for that to happen, teachers need to be seen for their whole selves, what their communities uh, have been through in the education system, how they've educated themselves in their own communities, and how that can be particularly offered in the communities that they engage with. Could you possibly bless us with a final quote from the book that you could close us out with. I would love to. So one of the stories of the educators reimagining was a, on a district level of a teacher who came from the, the desert region of, and was really marginalized throughout his own education, um, but went to college, became an ethnic studies major, had dreams of really enacting change in his own community and kind of came back to do that by taking a job in his alma mater and really organizing for change. So I'm just going to share a little bit from the end of that story. It was through his mother's refusal to accept a devalued narrative of her son and the power of ethnic studies that Julian remembered his rightful place in education. He reimagined schools where young people would make sense of their lives and learn the power of their ancestors and communities. And as he worked tirelessly to transform the schooling system towards that goal. And now Julian has one son attending and another who will eventually attend the school where their father teaches and their grandmother leads. 
In talking with his younger son about education, when I was growing up, I went through 13 years of schooling, counting kindergarten, and I had one or two teachers that I could pinpoint that really helped me. And think about all the teachers now through our programming. You might have the opposite. You might have one or two teachers that are going to hold you back. Your experience is going to be so concentrated with caring and transformative teachers that you're going to be able to find out how great you truly are. Through resistance to what is and a collective imagination of what could be, Julian worked to reclaim schools with and for his community, and he was now able to provide his sons the education generations of his family had dreamed of. This spin of the LP with Rita Coley left me with a few things to reflect on. And you'll probably notice they include a lot of words that start with R. I'm reflecting on the value of counter story. It is research, it is reclamation and retaliation against tainted stories and narratives about people of color and their role as educators. I'm also thinking about how diversity may be a step toward equity, but it is far from the complete remedy. The same way that getting five tall people to play basketball for you doesn't necessarily mean you're set up for basketball success. Retention and consistent and authentic reception is key. And while it is important to think about the classroom and the instruction provided, it is also important to consider the collective experiences of our professional community and our students' community because all that can inform our approaches to classroom work. And lastly, racialization, resistance, and reimagination in the world of teaching and professional development are powerful testimonies of what is and what could be should we choose to lean in on the talents and innovations of educators of color. With folks like Retha leading the charge, I look forward to the process. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress. <laughs>